You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. We just ended a week of prayer for our police services, and uh, uh, we, we bless God for the privilege of, uh, of doing that. Um, besides the two officers that come to our church regularly, I know I, I know Connor's dad is here, so I forget your name, brother, but Connor's dad, that's who he is to me, and uh, a chaplain with the police, and so we're grateful that uh, you're here, and uh, Lord bless uh, all the police this week, and uh, I ask you to continue to pray that God would uh, bless this city. And uh, as we will we'll talk about in our message this morning, uh, God calls us and wants us to be praying for our city, and not just the police, but on so many different levels, uh, we believe that we're meant to be part of the change. You know, the Bible's uh, very clear about this fact. In fact, someone once said a bold statement, <clears throat> not sure if you'll agree with this, Someone once said that the church is more guilty for not being revived than the world is guilty for not being converted. I don't want you to think about that. The church is more guilty for not being revived than the world is guilty for not being converted. That God's means for reaching cities is His people. And that our, our lives filled with God and reflecting the Jesus Christ that is Savior is meant to be the winsome, attractive, salt-like, light-like presence in a society that changes and makes things better. And this morning, as we're about to begin uh, our study on the book of Ephesians, um, tomorrow, this morning is kind of a, a general introduction to the city of Ephesus and Paul's first contact with it, but also in two weeks we're going to begin the actual exposition of the text in Ephesians, and uh, I want to encourage you to uh, consider buying the the uh, binder. There's a binder on the scripture notes that are is being sold. You can get the hard copy, or you can go online each week and study along with us all the maps and all the the commentaries and the outlines and things that you can. Uh, study either at home, privately, in your family, or with a life group, a Bible study group that you're studying with. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, we're going to start uh, by looking at the book of Ephesians. Paul's letter to the Ephesians was written around A.D. 64 by the Apostle, and uh, Paul's first contact with the city of Ephesus though, was much earlier, and we're going to be talking about some scripture found in Acts chapter 19 and 20, and uh, you can look at, you can have that open actually with you, that would be good, uh, Acts chapter 19. He was there for a total of three years, and uh, we're going to look at some of the first contacts. His first contact actually was during his second missionary journey. Paul visited Ephesus, uh, we read about it in Acts chapter 18, and uh, he was there uh, for just a brief visit in chapter 18, went away to uh, other places, then came back on his third missionary journey and visited the city of Ephesus. And uh, on his third missionary journey around A.D. 53 to 57, somewhere in that time, he spent actually three years in Ephesus and uh, had a profound impact as he preached the gospel, as many of others that were with him came and, and uh, ministered there, Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, and so on. Ephesus is one of the largest, was one of the largest cities in the ancient world, in the Greek world. And at, the, at one time, at its peak, it had a population of 250,000, which is a fairly big city for ancient times. And so, at the time, it was an important trade 
and commercial center. It was uh, uh, the, the, the capital of the province of Asia. And in chapter 19, verse 1, we read uh, that Paul took the road through the interior, arrived at Ephesus. And so that's where we're going to be- begin this morning as we just take a little look at this incredible missionary pastor Paul and how he began to impact in Ephesus. Uh, Let me begin by saying that Ephesus was a large bustling city at the time of Paul, had significant influence over the entire Roman or entire entire province of Asia. It had a thriving seaport, uh, incredible uh, lots of activity there, a commercial place, trade routes that went through. And it had been overrun by the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans in previous centuries. So even when Paul the Apostle arrived there uh, around 53 AD, uh, we know that that it was already uh, a very ancient city and had so much there in terms of archaeology, in terms of uh, uh, buildings and, and so on. It was the best, it is the best preserved city in the Mediterranean. If you were to go to Turkey today, you would find incredible uh, preservation of all the archaeological buildings and, and uh, sites with many inscriptions. And so we know a lot about Ephesus because of how well it's been preserved. I'd love to go there. Some of you maybe have gone already. You've seen uh, the pictures that I'm, some of the pictures that I'm showing you. Well, what it's most, it was most renowned for at Paul's day was uh, the Temple of Artemis, or Diana as it's called in another language, but a temple of the goddess Artemis. It was uh, a melting pot of Oriental and Greek and Roman gods, but especially this, this uh, renowned temple that was huge. It dominated the skyline in some ways. Uh, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world at the time of Paul. Artemis was uh, considered to be the moon goddess. She was an Olympian goddess, considered the daughter of Zeus in Greek mythology. And uh, this temple in her honor was built in 800 BC. It was destroyed a couple of hundred years later and rebuilt to be even larger. And so, so the rebuilt structure in the 6th century BC was 450 feet long, 225 feet wide, and 60 feet high. Now, I don't know what the new uh, uh, stadium at the at University of Manitoba there is, uh, but 450 feet long, 225 feet wide, and 60 feet high. Got to be around that size or, or bigger. And uh, so in the middle of this temple, in the middle of this temple inside, was the statue of the goddess Artemis. Believed that it is the image of a divine being from heaven. In Acts chapter 19, verse 35, if your Bibles are open, you can see that it was believed that she, she fell from heaven. Some people in their studies connect this to a meteorite that fell upon the earth. And so lots of legend around this, not sure. But the, the important thing to know is that at the time of Paul, these citizens believed that this indeed was a divine image uh, and so they venerated her and uh, honored her. And uh, here's a picture of the artist's depiction of the Temple of Artemis in, in its uh, zenith in, in, in uh, the time of Paul. It was uh, destroyed in 268 A.D. And so the, the remains that we see there in, in Turkey now 
uh, are the remains because it was never rebuilt after 268. 127 enormous columns, as I said, an enormous structure. And in that building, what took place was that many priests and priestesses were involved in various rituals, various religious offerings, uh, sacrifices of animals to the goddess. Pilgrims would come from all around Asia Minor and would visit there hoping to receive favor upon themselves somehow. The seaport was accessible and so on. And so it was a very interesting place. Uh, many, if you've heard about some of these ancient temples like uh, Aphrodite in Corinth or this one in, in, in Ephesus, a lot of times we, we read that there was temple prostitution and so that the priestesses, these women that were obligated to serve two years as a, uh, some kind of initiation rite, were actually serving as prostitutes. And I, I've read recent research that has really challenged that. Not to say that it wasn't a lot of sexual degradation going on in, in the culture, but that uh, the idea that there were temple prostitutes may not be as, as, as accurate as, as sought. One of the reasons is because uh, the noblemen, the aristocrats of the city of Ephesus, uh, gave their daughters for that two years of service to serve in the temple, but they would not be as inclined to give their daughters over if it was going to be two years of prostitution. And so, so there's a lot of... Uh, of research that's being examined and re-examined right now. And uh, <clears throat> so just a kind of a X-rated here, uh, here. Here's a picture of Diana, of Artemis. Uh, this is a statue that was at the center of the temple. This is uh, obviously a, a replica, but uh, it had re religious, as a religious mecca, it drew tourists of all, all over the place. And so silversmiths and craftsmen would, would make statues out of clay or out of silver or some other metal, and uh, they would sell them. They'd be little things two inches tall maybe or bigger, sometimes household gods, maybe three feet high. And they would take these things and then go off, and, and this would be their, their, their you know, uh, image of divinity, so to speak, and so on. There were coins that are found with Diana's name and replica on it from Ephesus. And, uh, and so this statue, you'll notice, has a, a beautiful headdress. You'll notice that you don't see the, the bottom part of her body, which is kind of like a, a column. But then you'll notice in the midsection, there's a multi-rows of breasts. And it's because that she was believed to be the mother of all life. And uh, there's the, there was this incredible belief system that centered around her. She was the center. And so uh, these little household statues appeared all over, not just in Ephesus. And we'll read about it later, but in Acts chapter 19, verse 24, uh, Demetrius, one of the silversmiths named in the Scripture, uh, was taking issue with Paul's preaching because their business of making these little trinkets and souvenirs was going down. It was affecting the union, so to speak. And so... And so they began to get angry with Paul. And it's interesting because in, in the temple area in Ephesus, it's found an inscription with the name Demetrius. It's, it's dated A.D. 57, which was just after Paul had been there. And he's called the warden of the temple. Now, Demetrius was a common Greek name, so we don't know if it was the actual man that's being spoken of in Acts 19, but it could be that he was the one. Now, when Paul came into a city, we know that he had a strategy. And, uh, and his strategy was always that he would go to the synagogue of that city. 
as a missionary strategy. He would go to the synagogue. He, as a Jew and as a Pharisee, would have a a reception there, and he would be either allowed to teach or, or not allowed to teach. And in the case of Ephesus, and here is the remains of the temple uh, that we find in, in Turkey right now. And it says in chapter 19, verse 8 of Acts, Paul entered the synagogue and he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. And so we know that Paul had a reception there. But in the very next verse, in verse 9, it says that he took the disciples with him and had discussion daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And that's because after three months, the Jews began to reject him. They began to be obstinate. They didn't agree with his gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, we don't know where the hall of Tyrannus is. It's actually, nobody knows on the site today which building it might have been. Um, but he went there. We don't even know who Tyrannus was, in fact. Uh, there's various theories out there. He might have been an, an ancient philosopher. The, the lecture hall was built in his honor. He might have been a present-day philosopher in the time of Paul and then showed favor to Paul by giving him his space to, to actually teach. There are some ancient manuscripts, Western manuscripts, actually, that describe not just that he went there, like Acts 19 says, but that actually he was there between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. every day. <laughs> And we don't know the validity of that, that, but it would make sense that, that perhaps if he was given the access to the lecture hall, that is the heat of the day. The, the more esteemed philosophers preferred to teach in the cool morning hours or in the evening when they could draw a crowd. And so it could be that in the middle of the day, Paul was allowed to have access to the hall of Tyrannus, and there for two years, the Bible says, he was uh, given the ability to preach. It says, went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Not just the city of Ephesus. The entire province was being affected by this uh, man that was preaching about the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 19, verse 31, you'll notice that even some of the officials of the province had been converted to Christ and were trying to protect Paul and his companions when the riot breaks out in Ephesus. So, as we continue in verse 11 of chapter 19, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Some of these things are very hard for us to understand. Handkerchiefs that Paul had touched, or aprons, they would be taken to sick people, it says in Scripture, and anyone who touched them was made well. I mean, God was doing things in that time, in that way, that were incredible. There's uh, stories told in Acts 19. We'll, we don't have time to read verse per verse, but um, people were, were uh, bringing out their scrolls of sorcery, and they were making piles and burning them in courtyards because they'd been convicted about, about that. I remember back in the day I, after I had come to Christ, and I had all kinds of old LPs, albums, you know, the older folks that understand the terminology I'm using. And, uh, and I, I remember I had like Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin and Yes and Genesis and all kinds of, of these old bands. And, and some of them, I just felt convicted one day. And, and we had this bonfire, a bunch of people, and we just burned all these albums. And, you know, that's what was going on in Ephesus. There was all these scrolls. Of, of sorcery that were being burned. God was rocking the city of Ephesus. Demonic oppression. People were being healed because of the preaching of the gospel. There was conversions. There was miracles. In short, what was happening in Ephesus was 
that social, spiritual, economic, and political life of Ephesus was being affected. It was being affected. But the way that it was happening was one soul at a time, one person at a time. We don't read about some kind of a great lawmaking uh, vessel that was changed, no moral majority happening in Ephesus. We don't read about some kind of right-wing politicianal movement that was affecting society. We don't see policymakers that were Christians that made changes. We see the gospel of Christ being preached. We see people's lives being changed everywhere from governors on down to peasants. And we see the social, economic, spiritual, and political life of a city and an entire province being changed. That's incredible. Can we not make the link to Winnipeg and Manitoba? Can we not see that the same gospel of Jesus Christ is going to work the same way, the power of God is going to work the same way in a city that we say can belong to Jesus Christ, and in a province that can be affected by the gospel. But how is it going to be affected? It's going to be affected one soul at a time. We don't need to depend on some kind of a top-down, law-making, policy-making way. We can see that as salt and light, the, the people of God revived and revitalized and witnessing His gospel and living His life can actually change a province. Could I hear an amen? <laughs> I believe that's possible. Do we believe it's possible? We just finished a week of prayer for the city, police, and uh, I want to encourage you to keep praying. Uh, other churches carry on week by week all year, but let's keep praying for the city. Pray for, pray for the police. Pray for the people that are involved. Pray for that 21-block area that was identified this, this past few weeks in our prayer times. Pray that God will, will work in that place, that at the end of the year, the reports that come out are going to give God the glory because there's no, there's no reason why that would change. So the gospel was changing society. Here's the scripture in Acts chapter 19, verse 19. On one occasion, Paul's new converts had a bonfire and burned occult books valuing 50,000 pieces of silver. Wow. It was starting to affect the economy. It's starting to affect the lives of people. Well, of course, when God comes with power in, in, in a city or in a, among a people, we see this, we saw this in the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark when we were preaching it last year. When, when God comes with power, he rocks the world of people and they don't like it. And so we read in Acts chapter 19 and verses 13 and following about some, some sons of a chief priest in the area Seven sons of Sceva, they're called, and they are dabbling in black magic. They are dabbling with the demonic, and they're, they're trying to cast out demons. And so they see that Paul's being successful and his colleagues, and so they take the name of Jesus, and they go, and they try to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. But, of course, they're not followers of Jesus. 
Whereas every, every blood-bought Christian is a temple and Christ lives within and therefore we have authority to speak in Jesus' name. Someone who does not know Christ personally and is not indwelt by God's Spirit can say Jesus all they want. They're not going to have any authority from Him. And so these seven sons of Sceva, as they're called, uh, they come across a man who is a demoniac. He's, he's indwelt by an oppressive spirit. And they try to cast him out in the name of Jesus. And here's what happens. It's, I love this little comic here. It says, okay, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who the bleep are you? Because that's what happens when you try to take Jesus as some kind of a formula, magical word, spell, or something. It doesn't work that way. And so we see that indeed uh, Jesus did not honor their activity well, just like a family, just like society, when there's a dysfunction, sometimes the dysfunction is just feels so good that you want to stay in it. I, I've talked to police uh, here and as well as in Thunder Bay where I served before, and uh, we had a few police officers in our church there, and I remember going out sometimes on an evening beat or something, and uh, my one friend Scott said to me that the worst calls he always were the domestic calls. And he said that it's because sometimes you'd go into a domestic situation, you're trying to bring peace, you're trying to protect someone, and sometimes the very person that you're trying to protect turns on you, and the whole family is against you. And, and it's that kind of way that dysfunction has a sort of equilibrium, a comfort zone. And that's what happens in society as well. Society can have a certain dysfunction, as all societies do. Every generation has their way of being unwell. But it's, it's sort of what we know. It's what is natural, what fits together. It's what we are used to. And so similarly, we read in the Scriptures here that in Acts chapter 19, verse 23, when the gospel is upsetting the whole economy and uh, when the gospel is, is changing the, even the economy, uh, that uh, Demetrius, this silversmith, stands up and in verse 27 it says, he says there's a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself will be robbed for her divine majesty, of her divine majesty. And so there's a riot that starts. The union sort of gets upset and there's a riot that starts because you can, you can believe anything you want, Paul. You can go to that hall and preach what you want. Others following you, that's fine, but don't you touch what we value. Don't you mess with our money. Don't you mess with our livelihood. You see, it's similar to what Rome preached as a gospel. You see, Rome did not have any trouble with Christians saying, Jesus is Lord. They didn't have any trouble with saying, Jesus is Lord. As long as at the same next breath they could say, Caesar is Lord. You see, that's the kind of faith that can often get passed off as Christian. We can have people that can come to church on Sunday and sing, Jesus is Lord, as long as you let them go Monday morning and say, something else is Lord for the rest of the week. That's the kind of faith that we can buy into, the lies. And in Ephesus, that would mean saying, great is Artemis of Ephesus. And so a rally occurs, and they take them, Two of Paul's companions, verse 29, Gaius and Aristarchus, they seize them, they take them to the theater. This is an incredibly huge theater. Even today, they still use events for sometimes. 25,000 people can sit in this theater. 
in Turkey. It's used, it was used at the uh, time of Paul for concerts, plays, uh, philosopher debates, gladiators, animal fights, public trials, kind of the MTS center of Ephesus, you know. And there it was. And uh, thankfully, here in the midst of this mob, there was this clerk, this city clerk that stood up and spoke a, a sensible word and, and quieted the crowd. And thankfully, no one died in that mob, that lynch mob. You know, when we were in Bolivia we, in uh, January of 2007, uh, we had just returned from a home assignment, and we were staying at a guest house downtown. And about a block or two away from us, there was, there was incredible civil unrest in Cochabamba. And it was basically the campesinos that had come into the city by busloads, and they were confronted, confronting uh, the, the, the followers of a local politician who sh- should have left office but didn't and wasn't fairly representing, and there was this incredible clash during January, early January 2007. There's a Black Thursday, because on that day, two people were killed, one a campesino, one a follower of this uh, politician. And in the middle of this lynch mob, you know, it is a dangerous thing when you see a lynch mob. You see crowds clashing. And uh, in one of the situations, a son of one of the followers of this political leader was lynched in the crowd and tied to a post and slit his throat. He died. Another campesino was shot to death. I mean, this was all within a couple of blocks of where we were staying. You know, crowds can be dangerous. And this situation that we read about in Acts 19, it was a dangerous situation. It could have exploded. Paul could have ended his missionary term in Ephesus with awful, awful news. Colleagues being killed, martyred. Instead, this clerk stands up by the grace of God, calms the crowd. And we read in the very next verse, chapter 20, verse 1, it says, When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Kind of a tough way to end his career as a missionary pastor in Ephesus, but that's the way it ended. And we don't know that he ever went back. And so it was some years later that uh, under house arrest in Rome, 64 AD, Paul writes the book of Ephesians along with other epistles and he sends it by messenger through uh, to, to Ephesus. Probably a circular letter, which means that because of the lack of detailed content, names and so on in, Eph- in Ephesians, we recognize that it was probably a letter that was sent to various little house churches. And so a house church might receive it, they'd get the word out to their little membership, and they'd say, we got the letter from the Apostle Paul, we only have it two days, so come on, tonight we're going to read it. And so they would have read all six chapters in one sitting. And... Uh, so there it is, Ephesians, that comes to us. Many years later, in uh, Revelation, in our book of Revelation, around 95 AD, John, the apostle, describes the church as having forsaken their first love. Interesting postscript to Ephesians, kind of running ahead of ourselves. And we're going to look at how incredibly growing and mature the church of Ephesus was. And then we look back 30 years later, in, in AD 95, we say, it's written about them, they left their first love. You know, every generation has its way of being unwell. And every generation has to figure out how to, be, how to make the lordship of Jesus Christ real for them. And we're called to do that too, one soul at a time. You know, there's a, a, a legend that centers around the whole time of Ephesus. And, and it's actually 
not until about 250 A.D. So we're, we're fast-tracking past Revelation into the early church history, 250 A.D. And there's a legend surrounding Ephesus. This is a time when Christians were still being persecuted uh, under Decius. And seven young Christians from Ephesus, it's written about them that they were... They were um, going to be martyred for their faith. They escaped Ephesus. They just got into the outskirts and, and they hid in a cave. And this, you can read about this. This is called the Seven Sleepers of Ephesus. And, and in a cave, they, they, they were there and instead of going and dragging them out and having them go to the theater and, and either get martyred there or eaten by lions or something, they actually just sealed up the cave. They, they sealed it up and so that they buried them alive, basically. And, and the legend, again, this legend goes that, that uh, 200 years, 180 to 200 years later, uh, they reopen the cave by accident. Somebody finds this cave, and they go in. Now, remember what happened in 321, right, A.D., Constantine, the emperor of Rome, makes Christianity the official religion of Rome. And so while they've been sleeping, supposedly... Christianity has now become the official religion of Rome. They find these seven bodies, but they're not dead. They're sleeping, according to the legend. They take these seven, and they appear before the emperor, and the emperor wakes them up, and they, when, when they wake up and they see who they're standing before, they, they still profess the name of Jesus. But things have changed, and now they're allowed to live. And they, they circulate around Ephesus and they witness. Now, this is legend. I understand. I don't believe this is a true story. But what, what would it be like? Just can imagine for a moment. What would it be like if, if a citizen of ancient Ephesus were revived and were to come to visit Winnipeg? One that was going to be martyred for his faith came and came to Winnipeg and, and said, How do you follow Christ? What are the idols of your city? This is what we had in Ephesus. What's going on in Winnipeg? What are the deterrents to being a, a, a sold-out follower of Christ in your city? How do your churches work out discipleship? I wonder what he'd say to us. I wonder how he'd, we would have to respond to him. Well, I'd like to conclude with words from Paul in Acts chapter 20 as he has his last meeting with the elders of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. And here's what he says. He says, keep watch then over yourselves. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. God bless you.